What if you were in charge of Santa's naughty and nice list? Do you have someone who would be on Santa's naughty list this year, no matter what they did this year, no matter what? Or, more practically, do you have an, some names you would put on an enemies list, like the kind President Richard Nixon had? Maybe we don't want to publicly state the fact that we have enemies at all. But surprisingly, Jesus spends no time wondering if he had enemies or if we have enemies. He assumes he knows that we do. So here's the big question. How will we treat our enemies? Hi, pals. This is Blaine Hill with the Simply Stated podcast for the Journey Sunday School class at Lake Murray Presbyterian Church in Chapin, South Carolina. This season of the podcast is on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthews chapter 5 through 7. And today we're going to read verses 43 through 48 in the fifth chapter. I'll try to get the basic ideas of the passage simply stated. Then we'll see what we can learn about the person of Jesus and some theology about eternity. And then maybe most importantly, some ethical guides that we can take from the reading. But let's read the scripture first. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, What more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, this is the sixth and final in a series of antithesis statements, where Jesus says something like, You heard in the past, but I say. This is the structure he's been using in teaching about the law. And so here's the law. He summarizes, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Actually, the first part isn't a summary at all. He's quoting from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is a book we probably don't read very much. It's filled with uh, very detailed and sometimes strange laws, things like don't sow two kinds of seed out in the field and don't wear garments made of two kinds of material. But in the center of Leviticus, in chapter 19, we hear this, love your neighbor, love your neighbor one of the key teachings of Jesus. But then he goes on as his statement of the law and hate hate your enemy. Well, that's not actually a quotation from the law from the Old Testament, but it is a troubling and fair summary of parts of the Old Testament. We could think about um, the slaughter of the people living in Canaan when the children of Israel uh, came out of Egypt and moved in. But let me just read from Psalm 35. Flip back to it here. This is verse verses 7 through 9. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let ruin come on them unawares. And let the net they hid ensnare them. Let them fall into it to their ruin. Then my soul shall rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his deliverance. Calling for the destructions of our enemies. It's it's a very raw if and perhaps over-candid expression of how we feel sometimes. 
And Jesus recognizes that part of the Old Testament seemed to encourage us somehow to relish the destruction of our enemies. It's a troubling part of the Old Testament. So, what does Jesus do to fulfill the law? He gives us a clear command. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, that's a... Uh, part of what Jesus is doing here is, once again, he is being provocative with his speech. Not in a word picture, but in contradiction. Let's face it. Somebody who is your enemy is someone that you don't love. That's, by definition, what they are. Someone who is seeking your destruction. Someone who we hate. And what is it? Why, why would we possibly pray for someone who perse- persecutes us? who is after our own destruction and our own bad end. Jesus goes on to answer exactly that question. So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. It's important to see that the reason we can possibly consider loving people who are opposed to us or praying for people who um, persecute us is based in the love of God. Let me say that again. The only way we can think about loving our enemies or praying for those who persecute us is based in the love of God alone. Thinking about ourselves and our own power, we're obviously not going to love our enemies or pray for those who persecute us. But if we focus on our Father in heaven so that we may live as children of our Father in heaven and focus on His love, then perhaps, and indeed, surely, because Jesus promises and commands it, we're able to love those opposed to us. In this, it's important that we see, that in this command, we see Jesus is summarizing the gospel. That though human beings, though creation was opposed to God, God loved us and gave His only begotten Son for us. And in part, that's why we can trust the commands of Jesus, or at least give them consideration. When He dies on the cross, He dies praying for those who were killing Him, those who crucified Him, those who handed Him over to the Romans, and those who betrayed Him. Jesus' words are something to take seriously, because He took them seriously and acted them out. So the only chance, the only way we could possibly love someone who is our enemy is based not in ourselves, but in God, but in God's love. Jesus goes on to say he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. What's the big deal if we love people who love us? Here, Jesus does something very interesting. By looking at the providence of God for all people, He puts a strange challenge to us. One of the harder challenges that comes in theology and in in the Christian life, really, is to wonder this very human question. Why do bad things happen to good people? But Jesus isn't answering that question here. He's flipping it upside down. He's pointing out that good things happen to bad people. That God's love and care is not based upon who we are and what we do. But that God loves us because of who God is. And so we're called to live in the same way. What's the big deal if we're good to those who are good to us? 
We greet those who greet us. By the way, what Jesus probably has in mind here was the obligation for a Jewish person to greet another Jewish person with a blessing. Uh, whereas they might not need to do so with a pagan, but they had a commitment to each other as children of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had a commitment to to greet each other with peace and with blessing. But Jesus is saying that our pronunciation, our announcement of God's favor is to extend beyond the boundaries we might be accustomed to and we might set up, but for the whole world. And of course, that's how Jesus greets us as well. He pours out God's love on us and care for us, God's grace, His benediction. We saw that in the Beatitudes based on who God is. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the earth, not because it's theirs, but because God is generous. Well, why is it important that we love our enemies and that we base our love in God alone? We come to something strange that Jesus uses to end this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect? Well, we thought loving our enemies was going to be too challenging. Now he's calling for us to be perfect. I have to say this is one of the few places where modern translations maybe let us down a little bit. The word perfect there, it does mean complete, but in the sense of something that reaches its goal, Or someone who becomes mature, is no longer a child, but becomes mature. We we can love and enjoy the presence of children, but that's not where we hope they stay. Or here's a a simpler uh, comparison. Think of fruit that grows ripe. Have you ever bitten into a green apple? I don't mean a Granny Smith. I mean an apple that should be red, but is green. Oh, it is unbelievably terrible. It hasn't ripened yet. It hasn't reached and grown into its proper end. Jesus commands us to love those who are not lovely because that is our proper end game. That is where Jesus wants us to mature into or what Jesus wants us to mature into. Into people who are able to love based in who God is. Well, that's stating the meaning of the passage, I hope simply. What can we learn from the passage? What larger understanding can we get? What about what does this teach us about who Jesus is? Well, he knows we have enemies. Maybe he understands the world better than we do. He is able to look at the world and understand that there is opposition. Recently, I heard a, a politician named Dan Cranshaw uh, he a speech that he gave, and he said something very interesting. He says it's important that we uh, oppose ideas rather than attack people, and I think he's right in that. But uh, and and he seemed to be hinting at the idea that we we shouldn't treat uh, our people who disagree with us in our our country as enemies; that we shouldn't attack them personally. I think he's quite right with that, and it's interesting to think about because he's. Uh, a decorated war veteran was a Navy SEAL uh, who served, I believe, in Afghanistan. He is accustomed to having enemies. He understands what that means. And so it, it's worth thinking about. What does it mean to not treat people with different ideas, as uh, to treat them not as enemies, but as fellow citizens? I'm not sure that applies perfectly, but it's something I've been thinking about. And Jesus understands we are in conflict with other people, that there are people who oppose us. But he says we are not 
to attack them, but to show them God's love. Uh, and then, of course, this is something Jesus actually did. He lived out what he teaches us here. So that's what we learn about who Jesus is. What theological ideas can we draw from this text? Um, well, I mentioned before Jesus flipping around the usual, usual problem of why good things happen or bad things happen to good people if God is so powerful and so loving. Instead, he points out God's grace and God's providence by saying, look, good things happen to people who are good and bad. God is pouring out his blessings on people because of who he is. He notes that good things happen to bad people. And then, of course, there is the central premise, theological premise in Christianity, that God is our Father. That God is not far off in distance or some imposing king or lord, but as our loving Heavenly Father. That's a central idea for all of Christianity and certainly for Jesus, who is the Son of God. Um, how does this passage help us to view eternity? Well, maybe by bringing eternity into the present. If we think of ourselves and understand ourselves as children of God, can we now begin to live according to the house rules of our Heavenly Father? Can we live according to the house rules of the kingdom of heaven? I imagine you understand what house rules are. Um, when we were kids, uh, we all had friends where they just did things differently in their house. Uh, I had friends who were allowed to uh, watch television uh, well, way past nine o'clock, which seemed an impossible thing to me, at least on a, a school night. But they were allowed to do that. Or here's one. In my house, we weren't allowed to watch television in the morning before we went to school. And I had friends who always watched television while they were eating their breakfast. It's just different house rules. Well, if we are made children in God's household through Jesus Christ, we're called to begin now to live according to the house rules that God will establish when he brings his kingdom. And that includes loving people, even though they are not lovely. Last, if we look at how should we live according to this teaching, well, we're called to maturity, not just sentimental behavior. We're called to love. Here's a concrete action that we can take as a result of this command. Jesus says we should pray for those who persecute us. Maybe it's more helpful to think about the us there as the whole of the church. We know that there are Christians who suffer for their faith in Jesus in different places around the world, in places like North Korea and Iran. I suspect, in, in fact, no, in Saudi Arabia too, it's very difficult to be a Christian. So, rather than simply opposing those who are in opposition to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to pray for those places and the people who persecute the church in that place. And we know from contact with our brothers and sisters in persecuted places that that is something that they do, though it's difficult. We get here at the deepness of, of Jesus' teaching. We can see it played out in the civil rights movement in America. Part of its genius was Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he wanted not only to achieve civil rights for African Americans, but he was searching and the movement was searching for the transformation of those who were oppressing them and the people who lived in America. 
They wanted good things for all people, enemy or friend, that we might be reconciled. So the ethics of this passage played itself out in important ways in American history and still, let us hope, continue to do so. So the ethics of this passage are that we should do the things that Jesus says based in who his Father is. We should obey these commands. Not just because they're obeyed, uh, commanded by Jesus, but they begin to shape who we are. We begin to live out the commitments of the kingdom of heaven, which is what our Father wants for us. Not just to follow the rules. Jesus didn't come to get rid of the law, but to make it full. Maybe this is where we can think of him bringing the law to maturity, completeness, and ripeness. Well, pals, I hope this passage has been a blessing to you. As always, if you have a question or think I'm nuts about something, uh, I suppose agree with me too, I would love it if you reached out to me and shared with me your thoughts or questions, whatever this scripture inspires in you. Thanks so much for listening, and God bless you.